Judges. I will uh, speak like I did this morning and make sure that I don't keep you too late, all right? Because I know I don't have much time already. We've taken up a lot of time. Appreciate the testimonies. Judges. Uh, as we're looking at the book of Judges, it's important to just understand where it fits into the economy of, of the scripture. Uh, Joshua has just died. He's, he's left the scene. The children of Israel are in the promised land. Uh, they're, they're, they've pretty much established themselves in the promised land, but there's still battles to be fought. They're still out there trying to, uh, you know, trying to establish that they are in control of the promised land. By the way, it's still that way today, isn't it? Uh, but uh, that's, that's another story. So here's, that's what the children of Israel are doing. Can I point this out to you? The promised land is not heaven. It is not heaven. How do I know this? Because two things that I can tell you absolutely for certain. One, as you're going to see by the time we get to chapter two, these people are already sinning. And there's no sin in heaven. And two, we don't fight our way into heaven. Do you understand? There's no battles to be fought to get into heaven. See, well, I've always thought that the promised land, that's because we, we do treat it that way in hymns. I am bound for the promised land. Right? And in our minds, we th- we're thinking of heaven. We stand the, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand. Right? Uh, I don't have to cross Jordan alone. And Jordan is that death, you know, and we cross into... No, that's not what the Bible is talking about in the Old Testament. The promised land is just that. It's the land of God's promise, of God's blessing. It is Israel being in the will of God. That's what the promised land is. And when you and I are in the center of God's will... It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a wonderful place to be. And that's the concept of the promised land. So uh, just to get that on there. There's an interesting thing in history happening about this time. About the same time that uh, Israel's crossing into the promised land and and establishing themselves there. uh, Historically, iron has made its way into the world. Uh, It's been discovered and uh, now all of a sudden there are tools and there are weapons, uh, agriculture, everything is being impacted by this new metal uh, that is being used in a very unique way. And God's even going to reference that here uh, in the book of Judges. So you have that. A judge is someone that God establishes as a leader. Uh, in, in it's a little bit different than a judge for you and I in the way we think of judges. A judge had... Uh, Political power, civil authority, uh, he had religious authority, religious power. Uh, he, he kind of, instead of, in fact, later on, Israel is going to say, we don't want judges anymore, we would rather have a king. And so it's that kind of a, you know, a judge was kind of re- taking the place of a monarch uh, that was not there at this point. This book covers about 200 years from the time that Joshua dies to the time that, the, that King Saul and his kingdom is established, about 200 years, and that's, that's what this book is going to cover. So it kind of gives you a little bit of the history uh, of this, all right? So let's, uh, uh, let me give you this statement, and then we'll, uh, we'll go back to the why of it, all right? During this time in the book of Judges, Israel battles idolatry, oppression, 
famine and hunger again and again. And what we're going to do tonight as we just begin the first one and a half chapters of this book is to find out why it is that they have so many problems with these areas. Let's ask the Lord to bless our reading of his word. Father, we ask that you would help us to learn from your word tonight, help us to grow in your grace through it, and to uh, allow you to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's get into chapter one. We're going to jump into it as quickly as I can. I've got 20 minutes here to, to uh, get this to you, right? I know I've got all the time I want. I, every time I say something like that, somebody comes up and says, Pastor, you just take all the time you want. I do. You know how much I want to take? I want to take it until 7 o'clock. That's the time that I want, all right? Uh, I've always found that if I'm polite to you, then later on when I'm rude to you, it's nicer. So, uh, <coughs> so I'll try to get you out of here in time. Let's take a look at it in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up, and behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And what you're going to see now at the beginning of chapter 1 is a succession of victories, victories, victories. As the children of Israel have now crossed over into the promised land. By the way, can you remember what promise they made to Joshua? I talked about it this morning. What was it that these people had just committed themselves to one chapter before? As for me and my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. And the children of Israel said, we're with you, Joshua. That's what we're going to do. And so they, they come into this time in the promised land with great victory after victory after victory. Take a look at verse, uh, verse 3. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go up with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. And Judah went up. And the Lord, look what it says, verse 4. And the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in uh, Bezek 10,000 men. So, I mean, there's this great victory. They're going to walk in, and they're going to have great victory. Now, if it's true, and it is, that the promised land represents the Christian life that represents the center of God's will, then what are we battling? What's our battle? Are, is, this, is this a likeness to the Christian life? Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God, that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We're wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. What are we fighting against? What are our three great enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? So we're fighting against these, this, these enemies. That's what we're doing. We're much like the children of Israel. God has, has brought us to the brink of the Jordan River, and we've said, okay, Lord, I am willing to go with you that extra step I am willing to trust you with greater areas of my life. And we step out into the water, the water parts, and we enter the promised land and begin to see great victory. Do you remember when your Christian life had a lot of victories? Well, that's what the children of Israel are going through right here. And they're going to see this series of victory after victory after victory. Go down to verse 6 and 7. But uh, I, I did not uh, name these people. So Adonai Bezek fled, and, and I'm saying it that way because Adonai is a word that means Lord and Bezek, and so uh, said, I'm sorry, uh, fled, pursued, I'm sorry, I'll get there, fled, and they pursued after him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. What are his great toes? His big toes. So they cut off his thumb and his big toes. 
And apparently, in this story, he had been so mean as to do the same thing to several other people before. And God is like, you know what? You reap what you sow, Adonai Bezek. And that's what happens. In fact, he goes on to say that in verse 7. Three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem. Now remember, don't panic. Jerusalem is becoming a city of the Israelites, right? They're entering into this foreign land, and they're taking it over. And so that's, they're not fighting against themselves here at this point. Uh, and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain and in the south and in the valley. And Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was Kirjath Arba. And they slew Shishai and those people. So they, they slew them. They're seeing victory after victory after victory. Go down, if you would, to verse, uh, verse 17. It says, uh, And Judah went with Simon, or Simeon, his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited uh, Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So you're seeing, again, victory after victory after victory. Now, if this is the battles that you and I are fighting, the world, the flesh, the devil, let me kind of remind you, it's like, it's like when you said, you know what, I am not going to commit this sin anymore. I'm not going to let this sin have dominion in my life anymore. And we surrendered it to the Lord, and God gave us victory. Remember when you were having those kinds of victories in your Christian life? And that's what's beginning to happen here. What I want to show you, and what I want us to learn and as we're entering into this study of the book of Judges, is the danger of not dealing with sin in our lives. The battles that they're fighting, God said, you need to go in and you need to utterly destroy these people. Because if you don't, it's a danger. And as you and I approach the enemies in our spiritual lives, the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's an approach that is to utterly destroy. It is not anything else. Because anything else will get us into trouble. And that's what we're going to show you right here. Um, <clears throat> now let's take a look at some defeats that begin to take place. Look at verse 19. And Lord, the Lord was with Judah. Now, this is important to note. The Lord was with Judah. And he drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but could not, and that's not talking the Lord couldn't, this is Judah, could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. There's that iron being introduced here. It's going to be a battle that's going to be fought here. and they're going to, Children of Israel are going to learn how to use iron. But they had chariots of iron. Now listen, the lesson for you and I to learn here is that the battles that we're facing, these are tough battles. We are to put on the armor of God so that we can stand, so that we can, um, what's the fiery darts of the wicked? What's that phrase right there? Quench the fiery darts of the wicked, right? I mean, the battle, we're going to be up against, you know, it, it's easy when you first get saved and the battles are like simple. You know, I'm going to quit sleeping and I'm going to get up and go to church on Sunday morning. And, you know, that may have been a really hard thing at the moment, but, you know, in hindsight, it's like that was the easy battle. And up until this point, the children of Israel have had it pretty easily. They've utterly destroyed. But now, all of a sudden, they're facing an enemy who's a little more sophisticated, a little more prepared 
for the battle. Does God still want them to utterly destroy the enemy? Yes. And is the same God who promised to go with them and help them to drive out the enemy and to, to, to have victory, is the same God still on the throne? Yes. The problem is not in God. The problem is not that God's plan has changed. The problem is that the desire of the children of Israel to fight the battle. And you're going to begin to see that as we go through some of these defeats. Take a look at verse 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Look at verse 22. And the house of Joseph, they also went up against Bethel. And the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph sent to destroy Bethel. Now the name of the city before was Luz. And the spies saw a man come forth out of the city. And you can go on down through. And they, they allow the spy to go away, which was fine. That was not even an issue in this, ish, in this story. Uh, but in the end, they do not utterly destroy. In verse 27, go down. It says... Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheehan uh, and her towns. Go down to verse 34. And the Amorites, now this is an important step. It went from, they did not allow, they did not utterly destroy them. Look at now verse 34. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain. For they, the Amorites, would not suffer them, the Danites, to come down into the valley. Now, all of a sudden, it's not just that they've agreed to live with these people rather than utterly destroy them. But now, that very place where God said, go, this is your land, take it. They're no longer given access to it. The children of Israel have slowly but surely lost their will to continue to fight. And they've begun this slow process of compromise. In fact, take a look at it. It's kind of funny how they go about compromising. Take a look at verse 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong. Underline that phrase. When Israel was strong. It's not that they were weak. That they put the Canaanites into tribute and did not utterly destroy or utterly drive them out. Listen, here's what happens. The children of Israel are like, you know what? If we drive these people out, we're going to have to work. But if we let these people stay, then we can tax these people and we can make them our, our servants and we can put them to work for us. That's what begins to happen. So it's not only that they... They agree to let them dwell in the land, but they work out a compromise. Folks, this is a dangerous place for us to be in our Christian life, where we decide to compromise rather than, than follow what the Word of God has to say. God has brought us to a land of milk and honey. He wants us to know what blessing looks like. He wants us to know what spiritual victory looks like. He's empowered us to win the battle. And yet... The children of Israel are struggling here, and now they've compromised, and it's going to cost them. And take a look, if you would, please, at verse 35. In the latter part of verse 35, I want to show you what begins to happen with the children of Israel. But the Amorites 
would dwell in Mount uh, Heres, in Aijalon, and in, I love these names, don't you? Yet the hand of the house of Joseph prevailed so that they became tributaries. Now, in other words, Joseph taxed them. I want you to hear this. God's definition of victory was what? Utterly drive them out and destroy them. And the children of Israel changed the definition of spiritual victory from driving them out to we can collect tribute. Now, think about this in terms of our spiritual walk. What does God want you and I to do with sin? Flee youthful lusts. Let not sin have dominion. Let not sin reign in your bodies. Mortify, kill, the Bible says, the things of the flesh. That's God's definition of spiritual victory. And yet, as Christians, we somehow think that we can tame it, that we can rein it in and, and use it for our benefit, and, and that we can somehow allow this taming of our sin rather than victory that God wants us to have. And that's where the children of Israel came from. They started out, they knew what victory was. They were driving the, driving the, the Canaanites out of the land, getting rid of them, utterly destroying them. No compromise. Then they begin to allow them to stay. Then begin to try to tame them and use them. So they define victory as, in the latter part of verse 35, it literally says that Joseph prevailed because he was able to draw tribute from them. No, prevailing was driving them out. That's what God wanted. God wanted them gone. And the children of Israel changed the definition of victory to be, well, it's not so bad if. It's kind of like this. Victory is, for you and I, Christ-likeness. And we have redefined victory to say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as. You get the idea? And we're down here and we're calling it victory. That somehow what we're doing is victorious. And it does not reach the level of victory. Take a look at chapter 2. Let me show you what begins to happen and we're almost done. Verse 1, 2, and 3. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars. Now listen to what it says. But ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, or because of this, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. Because you have chosen to compromise, because you have redefined what victory looks like, God says, I'm no longer fighting that battle for you. Look what it says. But they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. This is where the children of Israel are now. I mean, in just one and a half short chapters, they've gone from the great victory of Joshua to being rebuked by God for their redefining of spiritual victory. And for you and I, it's the challenge. Are we seeking victory in this land of promise that God has given to us? 
Are we still, are we still you know, striving for the goal that is set before us, the high calling of the, the prize, the high calling of the mark of Christ Jesus? Or have we become content to dwell among? Have we become content to let sin become our tool that we use? And we've now described that as victory. God says, listen up, parents. God says, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be a thorn in your side, and their gods are going to become a snare to you and to your children. It is so important, Christian, that we approach our Christian life in a godly fashion, that we not be content with anything less than spiritual victory, lest we find ourselves having a thorn in our side and our children have a snare by the gods that we've allowed to stay in the land. And that's what the children of Israel are. And that's what the whole 200 years is going to look like. The battle of famine, the battle of rebellion and oppression, the battle for 200 years of the children of Israel, occasional victory, a lot of defeat, a lot of struggles, because there's an unwillingness to deal in a godly way with the enemy. So we're taking from it, let's get back, let's put on the arm of God, let's get back into battle, and let's let God bring us victory. And then we're going to learn something from the children of Israel as well. Father.